0: Welcome to DanceCast. I'm your host, Seema Belmar. The other day, I spoke with Steven Texera, who is a photographer, a dance photographer, but not only a dance photographer, but that's of course how we got connected. We talk a little bit about the practice and we talk a little bit about images and we talk a little bit about uh, philosophy. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Just a few notes before we get started. I played it a little bit fast and loose during the interview when it comes to phenomenology and existentialism, you know, just your everyday chit chat about French philosophy. At one point, I can't remember the name of Maurice Merleau-Ponty's big text. Uh, and then I remembered it's the phenomenology of perception. Duh. But I mentioned this moment in Merleau-Ponty's other work called The Visible and the Invisible, an unfinished work of his a section called The Intertwining, The Chiasm. And uh, I wanna read that section to you because it's beautiful. Okay, here we go. It is said that the colors, the tactile reliefs given to the other are for me an absolute mystery, forever inaccessible. This is not completely true. For me to have not an idea, an image, nor a representation, but as it were the imminent experience of them, it suffices that I look at a landscape, i speak of it with someone then through the concordant operation of his body and my own what i see passes into him this individual green of the meadow under my eyes invades his vision without quitting my own i recognize in my green his green as the customs officer recognizes suddenly in a traveler the man whose description he had been given there is here no problem of the alter ego because it is not i who sees not he who sees Because an anonymous visibility inhabits both of us, a vision in general, in virtue of that primordial property that belongs to the flesh, being here and now, of radiating everywhere and forever, being an individual, of being also a dimension and a universal. Knocks my socks off. So other than the part about the customs officer, which is a little bit wonky, (laughs) there is, um, for me, a profound optimism in... Myrtle Ponty's concept of the flesh and of the chiasm, which we are not going to get into in this episode because that's some heady business. So, first, I spoke to a couple of your subjects, your dance <laughs> photograph subjects. Yes. Uh, one being maria kerr and then the other is randy povey so it was interesting because maria said stephen is one of the most personable people i know and i love this part which is odd because he feels despairing about humanity as a whole most of the time (laughs) is that
1: true true. that's true yeah it it is true i in theory i don't like people in practice i love pretty much everyone i come across
0: your photographs especially the portraits, they reflect so much humanity. They seem to suggest that the photographer, that the person behind the lens is very loving of and sensitive to humanity.
1: You know, I'm not really a misanthrope. I just see so much and I know everything is filtered through whatever venue I'm getting my information from over the last 60 years, but you know, we're not that great. And, and at times we can be stellar and ascendant, but I think to a great degree, we've failed of our promise in so many ways. And yet individually, even the worst person I've met, I feel like I can learn from them and find some humanity in them and find beauty in them and find find connection in them. And if I can't, that's on me. I, I truly believe that no matter who that person is, if I can't find the connection with them, I've failed somehow. Mm. And I think it's the same with, with everything that we encounter, like the worst sitcom ever made if you watch half an hour of it and you can't get some life lesson out of it you're not paying enough attention
0: oh i love uh, that mm-hmm. yeah and,
1: and that's sort of what i've tried to live my life by and my my work by and i try it informs a lot of
0: it and it certainly gets harder and harder to feel good in theory about humanity <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> these last years, Mario goes on to say, during my first interaction with him, I had reason to believe I could trust him, and now that came true. One of my dearest friends, I adore him, trust him with my life, and he's a great photographer. <laughs> so, <laughs> separate. I glad that made it. Here. And then Randy, she said, he asked what I wanted. And I sent him this kind of insane message and he just got it. Patty Smith, which is mystery, California, ancient shit. And he wrote back and he scouted a location based on what I said and he nailed it. And this was at the time, Stephen, when you offered free photographic services for dance artists. Yes. That, that was in June, right? Of this, of 2021?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I started, I think it was in March and I said anything through June and then I ended up going another month or two after that because some people wrote and said, is it too late? I was like, no, 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 of course not. Uh, And and in general, I have a hard time charging dancers at all. Totally.
0: (laughs) They have no money. (laughs) They have no money. And it, and it
1: uh, it feels wrong for me to profit off of someone who's struggling to do something like that. So the other work that I do, subsidizes the work that I do with dance photography.
0: You know, I think that people don't also recognize that it's not just like you show up somewhere and take pictures, that your method is to really try to get the space, the place, the time to connect in some way with the choreographer or the dancer's vision. And so she continues saying, I felt like he was truly serving me. I feel like he serves the artist. He wants to get to know you. Sure. To really photograph you. Anything he would tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll dive off a cliff. <laughs> she
1: would have too, I think.
0: Yes. Well, Randy, I know Randy much, much, much better than I do Maria. Randy's one of my oldest friends. You know, seeing those photographs, I really felt like, and I'm going to use the word capture, even though we're going to interrogate that word in a moment, captured her wildness which is something she often, as a teacher, is trying to elicit from her students. She often will be like, that's very nice and beautiful and clear and whatever. Now I want there to be blood. So I feel like the photographs, you know, have that craggy, windy like she says, witchy vibe. And then she says that the day wore on, I've never been so comfortable in front of a camera as I was with him. It was fun. I just knew I was in really good hands, which is similar to what Maria said, in the hands of a true artist. We had a preliminary conversation, you and I, and you were talking about the sort of relational quality of your work. We'll get to the specificity of photographing dance in a second, or you can bring that in as it comes up, because obviously you take portraits, you do nature photography, you do so many things. But we'll try to stay close to this issue of what seems to be a freezing, a capturing, a stopping time of a time-based art.
1: So about the relational nature of it, humans are social creatures, and the whole point of our being here is to interact with other people like ourselves, and for me, that's always been the case in everything that I've done professionally and personally. It's about making some kind of connection with somebody, Uh, and photography is the most recent way that I've been doing that. I do a lot of street photography. And with street photography, sometimes you have 30 seconds to capture a portrait of somebody. Sometimes you get 10 minutes or 20 minutes if they just, they're in the middle of their lunch and they have nowhere to go and you've just captured them. Uh, But whether it's 10 minutes or 30 seconds or two hours in my studio, I still have to get inside of that person in some way to show people who are going to see this image or these images that I've taken something that I saw in them. There's a reason that I stopped someone. There's a reason that I take someone's portrait. And if I can't do that, then I failed. So if I have had a bad day and I have a, something scheduled for a, a shoot that afternoon, I know that I have to get my head into a different place because what is in my head comes out in the images one way or another. And I've seen it and I, there have not been many occasions where that's happened, but I have had instances where I've done portrait sessions or or some other session where I just went into it and I just felt like this was the worst day ever for whatever was going on in my life. I can't remember the time, I'm sure it was vitally important, but now I've long since forgotten it. And, and I see the images, I see that reflected in those images because it is a relationship. It is something that I'm giving them and something they're giving back to me. It's an exchange and I think to a degree that's why I'm able, when I do street photography, to within 30 seconds connect with a complete stranger because they know I'm not just out there to take something. A a, a lot of the work that I do um, in street photography is documenting people who are unhoused and living on the streets of Alameda County. And I've been doing that work for for the county for a couple of years. And And I was doing it before that on my own. And it's not easy work and it can be voyeuristic and objectifying. And I think a lot of people who do it that is what it is, and that's their thing, and I, I don't have any judgment about that. It's just not what I want to do. So a lot of what I do when I'm out there doing that kind of work is putting my camera away and, and sitting and listening to people. It might be a minute. It might be I just sat and spent two hours listening to somebody, and then at the end of the I brought out my camera, and they're like, no, I don't want you to take my photo. And that's great. That's just what you have to do. But it's a particularly difficult interaction because these people are living their lives in the public sphere and they're used to people staring at them without seeing them. And they are used to people coming at them with a camera without seeing them. I think the reason I've been able to be successful with that is because I do bring something of myself and I do share things with them. And it's not necessarily even like, this is my story and this is who I am, but, but it's a sharing of openness. It's sharing
0: of trust. Yeah. It's sort of like the evolution of anthropology slash ethnography, where the earlier version of it was that the anthropologists somehow had nothing to do with what they were observing and had no impact on it and was just like a fly on the wall. And then over time, that concept of the participant observer emerged where, no, you're involved now in whatever it is that you're witnessing. You're part of it now. And so you have to reflect on yourself. It's not like living dioramas or something like that, which is how it probably is still treated by some folks. When you talk about your street photography, it sounded like if you see someone that captures your attention, you actually go up to them to ask them if you can photograph them. Is that always true?
1: It's mostly true that when I'm interested in a subject, I'll go up and talk to them. I like doing street portraits. I want it to be an interaction. There are times when it's, there's a moment, an interaction between two people or more, or one person or, or a scene where if I were to go and interject myself into it, it would be lost. Either I don't have time, or it would change the the situation to make it something that wasn't worthy in my mind of being photographed. And and in that case, I don't. But most of the time when I'm out there doing street photography, it's it's really just street portraits. It's trying to find people and find something in them, trying to find the beauty in them or the interest or the whatever. For a while I was putting up a lot of my street portraits on this website called Oakland Beautiful. And I did that for a sort of a uh, uh, mercenary reason, which is that people would often ask me, what are you gonna do with these photos? And i say, well, I have a website called Oakland Beautiful that I put them up on. It's like, oh, you know, they'd be like, oh, I'm gonna go up on the Oakland Beautiful site. So it was a way to get people to sort of loosen up a little bit. But yeah, generally I, I, I go up and I talk to people.
0: Cause my father is a street photographer, gonna be 87, so different generation. And he started as industrial designer and a painter and those sorts of things. And so- yeah for him, he definitely looks at the world as, you know, a spatial object oriented thing. And so even though most of his photographs have people in them, especially from the 60s, when he would just run around Manhattan, uh, taking pictures, but it's really about relationships, you know, and you can see that, but he's, I don't think he's thinking about humanity per se, I could ask him, I don't think he's, I certainly don't think he was concerned about, I mean, he has been chased, for taking a picture, (laughs) you know, I remember that, especially when we would go to the Jersey shore in the summers and he would roam the beaches, right? So that, and people, and I remember telling stories in a memoir class about my dad, you know, taking photographs of people on beaches and women on beaches and everyone being like, you know, that's creepy. And for the first time, me being like, is it, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because I grew up with the images and the images are not creepy. Right,
1: right. But I think that goes back to what I was saying about people who are voyeuristic when they're doing street photography. Because I've had other people, I've been doing street photography, taking a picture of someone who I've spoken to and know pretty well. Maybe I've known them for weeks or months, and somebody else will come by and see me photographing them, and I've been accosted by people saying, "You need to get that per- person's permission. You're doing a bad thing. You don't know what you're talking about necessarily." And uh, so no, yes. I get, I totally get that, and it's about what the intent is and what you bring to it, and and how you do it and how, and
0: ultimately it. how the images are manipulated by yeah. the world i mean that's also a huge issue <laughs> media yeah. and all of that so when you're doing street photography or street portraiture and getting to know people it sounds like that process is similar to how you work with dance artists that you get to know them you have a conversation yeah. before you yeah. take pictures but of mm-hmm. course you know the dancers are i assume looking for promotional Photographs. I mean, looking to use these photographs to be viewed by the world and to be reflective in some way of who they are, to catch people's eyes. And I mean, certainly your photographs do that. There's a lot of drama and a lot of movement I see in the dance photographs, but in different ways. Like obviously some of them are more staged and some seem to be during rehearsal. So there's different things going or maybe even some are happening in performance. Is that true? Occasionally,
1: yeah. Yeah, some are performances, some are rehearsals, some are uh, we've just gone out into the woods or under the streets of San Francisco and I've let them do their thing, and sometimes I provide feedback and that's been a developing process both within the context of that particular shoot and over time.
0: I really, really love looking at photographs. I mean, I've grown up obviously looking at them and with like yeah. a, cycl- a cyclopean father, like he always had the camera in front of his face, <laughs> right? Always. And it was way before cell phones. So it was, you know, a yeah. honking Nikon or a Leica just up in his face. But there's a lot of dance photography out there that really bothers me. I will not mention names because yeah. there's a way that it makes slick that which is inherently messy. I mean, anything in motion is inherently messy. Also, it's very hard to capture what is possibly the most significant thing about dancing, which is the transitions between uh, exciting moments. The dancing happens between the takeoff and the leap, not really the leap itself. And often the photographer will choose to capture the spectacular frozen moment. When you first started photographing dancers, what was your thinking around that in terms of, okay, this is a time-based, movement-based form? Because I don't even know if the dancers are really worrying or thinking about that necessarily. I think it depends on who you work with.
1: It's something that I think a lot about. And I think a lot of dance photography is just that it is, it's is—it's perfect and it's beautiful. And it is uh, just a split second in time. And we know that right before that and right after that, it was hideous and a mess. And it was just, particularly because a lot of these things are staged, a lot of the really beautiful, particularly a lot of the ballet stuff that when most people think of dance photography, they think of these magnificent ballet dancers flying through the air with a, a 20 foot long gown. And, and, and I think that's beautiful and I love it and I, and I consume a lot of it. It's just not what appeals to me because to me, it's akin to fashion photography, mm. which I could never do because... The goal in fashion photography is to obliterate the person that's wearing the clothes or the watch or the hat or whatever it is, and to focus on the look and what they're wearing so they can sell a product. And we don't want someone's personality coming through. We want a personality maybe, but not them. Mm. And I think a lot of dance photography does that same thing. You don't see the dancer. You don't learn anything about that person. It's not bad. It's not wrong. Like I said, I love to consume it but I don't find it interesting as something that I want to do. I think you can gain a lot by looking at dance photographs that have an actual dancer in them. And you see that dancer and you see the challenges that they're facing and the joys that they have and the struggles that they're going through. And and I think you don't see that in most photography. It's focused on dance.
0: My father has a a book of George Hurrell's photographs. He photographed the movie stars in like the forties and fifties. Do yeah, yeah, you know? Right. I, yeah. I remember. Them, yeah. I was obsessed with that book. I used to look yeah. through it all the time and it was like Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich and yeah. Errol Flynn, Cary Grant. And of course all black and white and just, you know, not a blemish, not a blemish. Right. Yeah. And even Fanny Bryce, who's photographed in a kind of comedic pose because she's yeah. a comedian, um, yeah. but everything is just, it's like a time capsule. Not just of these people, because they're obviously so completely made up to be perfect, but of just what, you know, a value system. So it's partly like the shifting value system of dance and this kind of drive. It's a contradictory drive, right? This is what, there's tension here. Like dancers want to be beautiful. They tend, not all of them. I mean, I'm making a big generalization, but concert dancers, television dancers, film dancers, the ones who are going to be seen in a certain way, uh, they worry, you know, they hate when they make mistakes. They get very uptight if they, you know, slip on the stage, which happens, which I understand because you're working very hard to master something. But there's also a real drive to stop erasing the labor of dance, to, to make it visible, the sweat, the blood, the pain, the awkwardness, the challenges. And I feel like even though your photographs are gorgeous. I think they're objectively gorgeous, but no one can say anything's objectively anything. There is a pain in them or something, a process or a, it's really challenging. I mean, it is it is a static 2D form and yet you can feel when a photograph has movement, has movement, doesn't capture it. So I imagine, I'm imagining Harrell, right? In a studio with the actress, obviously like completely posed, completely made up and yeah. you know, like shunk, that big sound and the big yeah light and it's very controlled. It's a controlled environment, I guess. And yet I still don't understand how, even if you don't have a controlled environment, even if Randy is, you know, gallivanting around a tree, I still don't understand how it doesn't freeze time. So, and which is what brings me to Kaja Silverman, but you can maybe speak to that first before I get really, really philosophical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) John Berger in one of his essays talked about photography is not the descendant of painting or carving, but of memory. And for me, that, that really rings true. To me, it's sort of a, look what I saw today. When I go out into the world, like, I wanna share this with you, look what I saw. And I'm not a storyteller, so, but I do like to convey things and I see lots of things. So for me, a photograph is, look what I saw. For me, there's value in seeing it that way because it is unlike every other art form that we can think of, it captures supposedly or not, It freezes a moment in time, it freezes a memory. And then I go and I take this memory and I share it with somebody else. I put it on my website or I show a print to somebody or I send them out to the dancer. And then they have that memory of something that happened that they didn't experience. Mm, It's like photography is telepathy. You know, I'm putting things into people's minds so that they have a memory of a moment that they were not at. To me, I think there's tremendous power and value in viewing it in that way,
0: yeah. But but when you say to have a memory of an experience they didn't have, you're talking about anybody who looks at the photograph, yeah. right? Yeah. But that's yeah. isn't that also true for the subject of the photograph?
1: Absolutely, yeah. But they they can be different. They can be wildly right. different than they often are.
0: But even for you, I mean, I can't get Heideggerian here because I don't remember any of my Heidegger. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> too hard being right. in time. I don't know, yeah. but. And maybe I'm even wrong. But maybe it's Bergson. I don't know, whatever. It's all a blur. By the time you snap, it's moved, right? So so in a way, it's, I mean, this is making me think of Deleuze and making me think of all those French guys who just drive you nuts, the post-structuralists, about, you know, deferral, that this is a Derrida der- thing about deference or difference, whatever, he made up a word, he gave it a different vowel. I can't remember. <laughs> but it's like that an experience is somehow different from what it was, but also deferred in time. So it's, he made like a, a, almost like a portmanteau word. And so I feel like photography is very much that. I mean, aren't you, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but it seems like you, every time you look at an image that you take in, that you're surprised to a degree. Is that true? Or maybe not, maybe I'm really making it deeper than it is.
1: (laughs) I think there is truth to that, yeah. When I have a photo session, I try to wait two or three days at least, between the time I take the photos and the time that I look at the photos and do anything with them at all. And the reason that I do that is I have an emotional connection to the moment that I took mm. those photos. And I don't yes. want that to infect the way I perceive the photos. So then I bring the photos up. I look at them. I process them. I do what I do to the photos. And I create these images. And Then I go back and look at them and, and they're different. They're different from what I was working with on my computer. They're different from the moment that I saved from oblivion when I took the photo. And part of it is that I'm different because I've experienced those things. I look, I do look at them completely differently. And sometimes photos that I just thought were like, "Oh, that's nice, that's pretty," but it doesn't have anything to it. I see something in there it that's like, "Wow, that that really says something to me." It doesn't remind me. It's hubris to think I know the difference, but it doesn't necessarily remind me of what I was feeling in the moment. But it makes me think of something that comes out of the image
0: itself. There are so many photographs of my childhood and of my family that I don't know what I remember or what is a photograph that is making me think that I remember a thing, you know, and I peer into these images of myself, hundreds of photographs of every moment of my life, and they're candids, they're all candids, and my father never posed me. I never sat for anything, but I mean, sometimes I could just, I can see an image from a photograph and then I can kind of remember the event and then I try to match what's happening and it's very, very tricky, but it it does seem like, and I'm going to give the more static dance photography that I'm being critical of a chance now, because I was thinking about, as you were talking, that there's space in your photographs and there's definitely space in my dad's photographs for the photo to change form every viewing to have a new thing happen. And maybe that's true for all photographs. Let's talk a Mm -hmm. bit about Kaja. So what happened, Kaja Silverman, who, if she's still teaching, which I think she is, is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, but she was a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, when I was a grad student. And I took a class with her, her last semester at Cal. I can't remember if it was about photography, if that was like literally what the class was about. But we read Proust. We read um, one of her favorite philosophers who became one of my favorite philosophers, Merleau-Ponty. She was really, really, really developing this uh, concept of the photography as an analogy. So let me quote her. So it's a 2011 interview, she says, and I've redacted. Photography is being's way of disclosing itself to us, of showing us that there really is a world and that it is not a human construction. Photography is also being's way of revealing that it is analogical, of helping us to see that everything is linked to everything else through relationships of greater or lesser similarity. So it seems to me that that she's just saying that life in a way yeah. reveals yeah, yeah. itself in photography. And this notion of it being analogical, which is something I try to think about in terms of dance writing. I had long thought of my dance writing to be in some way documenting or reflective of what I saw or what happened. And then over time, I started to think about it more as related to the dancing that happened in some way. Almost a version, an analogy of the dancing that happened, so that it was not, as she says later, the photographic image is able to perform this role, this role of revealing being to to us, because it is neither an index nor a non-representative representation, right? So it is not representing things, it is not pointing to something. It is in itself an analogy to the thing. Again, it's so hard. that It's almost hard to yeah. say, right? You can't say capture. You can't say shot. You can't say, anyway. Do you connect with this thinking? Yes and no. Okay.
1: Yes. More now and in different ways that you've said it out loud than when I read it. Okay. Um, <laughs> the the part about um, helping us see that everything is linked to everything else, to relationships with greater or lesser similarity resonates hugely with me because To me, that's everything that I do is about understanding the relationships we have with everything else around us uh, and trying to represent them in some way, trying to understand them. But I don't believe that it is just there's much more that goes into the image that comes out than just a reflection of what was there, just a reflection Mm -hmm. of the world. And And she says something about photography as being's way of disclosing itself to us showing us that there really is a world that is not a human construction. And I think there's sort of a, a hubris of it's there for us humans. I don't see the world in that way. And I also think that the world isn't any certain way. I'm looking at a photograph and you're looking at a photograph and I'm assuming that you're seeing the colors the same way I'm seeing the colors, but I don't know that. Mm. I know your brain doesn't work the same way as my brain and your eyes don't process information. The lens is different. And we make these assumptions that everything we see is the same. But, and and we see over and over and over again, every time there's a, a, an accident at a, a four-way stop sign and there's four different people who witness this accident and they see literally see four different things. And it's not that their memories are faulty. They saw different things. I always bring up, ticks. you know, A tick it falls out of the tree and lands on you and does bad things to you. And the, the ticks are drawn to, what is it, butyric acid on the skin of mammals or something like that?
0: I don't know, but ew.
1: And for a tick, the world is mammals and everything else. Hmm. They don't need to distinguish between a Pontiac and a Redwood tree because they're just not mammals. And every other animal has those same blind spots. And for us to think that as humans, we're immune to that, because again, I think hubris, I don't know what I don't see. I and mean, we know we see, you know, the, in the electromagnetic spectrum, we see less than 1% of it. So there's that practical aspect of what we literally can't see that our dogs and cats and the parrots and everything else around us sees much better than we do. But there's also just the blind spots that we have as human beings and as individuals that we are never going to know about. And I think it's the same when we look at the world through a lens or when we look at a photograph in front of our face. We're, we're not seeing everything that's there. I don't think it's a reflection of reality, that mm-hmm. there's some objective of reality out there. My memory of it, my interpretation of that memory, and then my interpretation as I was processing it. And then what that person sees is often vastly different from what I had intended and vastly different from what the, the dancer had in mind when they were moving in that manner.
0: This is so interesting because it brings us back to your, what Maria said about your despairing of humanity. <laughs> um, Everything comes back to that. Because I think Silverman would mostly actually agree with what you're saying. I don't think she's saying that there is a reality that the photograph reveals. Oh. Oh. I think she's saying that that the world is real, that the photograph helps us know that the world is real, that we're not just making shit up, that it's not just in our heads, right? It's, it's a way of, of showing itself to us. She's not yeah. saying that it shows itself to us the same way. And in fact, with uh, Merlot Ponty at her side, I yeah. can't even remember the name of his big book, Something Perception, Something Something Perception, I can't remember. But yeah. he, you know, you talked about the tick and he, I think, talks about an eagle that depending on so many things, um, the world has different affordances. For different creatures so the world for an eagle is a completely different world than it is from a human being same for a tick and then the other thing that you said about you know i don't know if you see the same color as i do i assume that you do again merleau ponty has this beautiful moment in the visible and the invisible so people have said that merleau ponty and sartre they were friends Jean-Paul and Maurice. Sartre was basically thinking about things the way you were presenting it. Like, I can never know. Like the person next to me is a steel trap and there's no way that we can ever be able to share the same way or we're never going to be able to understand each other in some way. So he had that like, you know, pessimistic for you. But Merleau-Ponty has this thing about you're standing next to someone and you're looking at green I don't know if they're looking at a field or something. And he acknowledges that my green and your green are probably different, but we can reach across. We can reach across through talk and we can gain access. And I feel like that's what Silverman is saying about the photograph, that it isn't because of its analogic quality, where it is revealing that everything is related to everything else in some way, that it's an opportunity for the viewer of the photograph to reach across to a time, to the other person looking at it in these ways. And and that's why she moves away from the notion of indexicality or representation, because that suggests a one-to-one relationship. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I take it back she's right. She can go on with <laughs> no. her life now, knowing that I have given her validation on her. I completely agree with that interpretation. Yeah.
0: And I could be a little bit wrong too. I mean, I don't, that's how I feel about it. But just based on the way you were talking about how you work with uh, folks that you take photographs of, you really have moved away practically from a concept of taking, taking from someone something and then pointing and shooting. It's so aggressive. It's so unidirectional the way we think about photographs, but the way you've been talking about it really aligns with this Silverman idea of a much more chiasmic or chiasmatic circular dialectical kind of relationship. I wanna look at some okay. images together. First, we're gonna look at some of yours. This is the, when you click on Stevens when you're in his website yes. and you click on dance, the first images of what look appears to be Anna Halpern's Parades and Changes. Yes. Which for those of you who don't know, involves a undressing, dressing, undressing, dressing sequence, and then a lot of what I think is like butcher paper that yeah. is shredded, Lots and of it. tons of it, and then danced within naked. Yeah. And so the image, it's a black and white image, is of a moment when the paper has almost become like a pyramid or like a mountain of it. It might actually be being thrown in the air, though it's not a particularly blurry photograph. So it doesn't look like things are flying around. Yeah, It almost looks like a steel sculpture with human figures like sticking out in it. But the way they're sticking out in it, because the poses are all like, not pristine in any way someone's crouching someone's reaching someone's seems to be walking someone's like looking like they're going to get knocked over it looks like a kinetic sculpture to me
1: yeah you know i i'd seen other versions of this from other performances and i always found them really quite beautiful and i wanted this to be in black and white because i think you lose the distinction between the paper and the people Mm -hmm. when it's in black and white, and it shows up much more when it's in color. The people stand out a lot more. I think as a black and white image, it becomes more of a sculpture because of that. You know, this was shot during a a performance. It was dark theater and- um,
0: Right, you could see the Marley, the tape. So there was
1: a lot of movement. Things weren't moving around. They were moving around relatively slowly. They weren't flying like crazy. So I was able to capture this and freeze it in time a little bit. When I look at this, it just seems absolutely still and quiet. Very different from what it was like when I was taking the photo, very different from what I was feeling when I was processing it. But now in retrospect, when I go back, this to me is this, it's a moment of stillness.
0: Yes. And there it is again, right? If we were limited to the idea that this photograph was a representation of the performance, then in in some ways it's a failure, right? Because of what you just said. It's not how you experienced it. You don't get the sound. You don't even get the slow motion movement necessarily of it. But when we think about it as an analogy to that experience, then it, it opens up worlds. It lets us think past it. Dance, you know, so undervalued, so misunderstood. It's partly because of, the, of its insularity and the way yeah. that there's not enough people out there trying to say, you know what? Actually, there's so much to relate to here. Yes. There's just this one dancer with this just, oh, these deep creases in the cheeks and the yes. furrowed brow and oh, looks like a Rodin sculpt. I mean, looks like a, an Olympian. But I know that in the moments of, of this piece, actually the dancers tend to look very fragile and very kind of almost really humbled by the nudity, by the, just the banality in a way of what they're doing. They're just several photos of dancers in positions that are not conventionally beautiful. Right. They look awkward, they look off kilter. Yeah, because even the ones that are a little more static dance photographer, like I can't remember that, I know this is an axis dancer and I can't remember her name. Yeah. And she's standing and on one leg with her right leg is extended a la seconde. But this one, it's more about her face. I yeah. mean, her gaze.
1: Absolutely. I had a dozen photos of the two or three seconds on either side of this image. And none of them had this particular resonance that her face has. It just speaks to me as a viewer in a way that the others didn't. There was nothing wrong with her face and the others. I really can't see a huge difference, but there was something that this made me feel that the others
0: didn't. It reminds us just what you're saying. Again, I don't know if it's accessible in photographs for the average person looking at photographs that yeah. the face is changing constantly. Whereas like the Hurrell, Greta Garbo, it's so posed that yeah. she probably held that <laughs> face yeah. for an unnatural amount of time. I so appreciate you talking yeah. with me.
1: Of course, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me to be on.
0: You can find Stephen at texeraphoto.com that's T-E-X-E-I-R-A-Photo.com. Or on Instagram at STEX Photo. Dancecast is an ODC theater production curated, written, and edited by Sima Belmar. That's me. With creative consulting from Chloe Zimberg and Sophie Lenanger, and additional support from Matt Shrimplin and Garth Grimble. Please subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. You can find a transcript of this episode and all Dancecast episodes replete with hyperlinks to related content at odc.dance/stories. Until next time, dance on.